In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Four sisters, Debbie, Joni, Kim, Kathy, born and raised in Philadelphia, a city in mourning if you're a sports fan. <laughs> yeah. Dad was a Broadway tap dancer. Mom was an accomplished actress. They were trained musically by their grandmother. And they cut their teeth singing in the AME church in Philadelphia, such that their, their reputation grew. They began to sing at charity events and political rallies, and um, eventually they matriculated at Temple University and all got degrees in music. And then in 1971, great year as it was, they formed a group, a band, known as Sister Sledge. And for those of you of a certain age, you know exactly who I'm talking about. And for the rest of you, you may not know them by that name, but you know them by this song. Get ready, here's an excerpt from their most famous song. They believed in long intros. If you see the original music video, uh, you know where Harry Styles gets his fashion out of sense. Um, my daughter hates it when I say that. Here's the thing. That, that's their, that's, they were no one hit wonders by any stretch of the imagination. But that's the song that they're most known for. We are family. Now, here's the thing about that song. Little maybe you didn't know. And it's not like it's uncommon. It's, very, it's a very common thing that happens. Um, that song is entirely about them. It's about their family. It's about them being sisters. But did you know they didn't write a word of that song? It was written about them, but it was not written by them. It was written for them, but they had nothing to contribute to it except their own voice. In fact, these dudes, these are the ones, Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards. Look at that. Woo. Can't you just see it? You can see it, right? They, they learned the story of Sister Sledge, and they wrote the song for them. And you know what? Sister Sledge was cool with that. They, they laughed all the way to the bank. They sang all the way to the bank. They love singing because it's their story. It's their shared solidarity. It is the anthem of their family. And not only were they glad to sing it about themselves, they were glad when you sang it too. They were happy to let their song be your song. They didn't, it was written about them, but it wasn't written by them. <coughs> Why do I use that as an opening for our for our sermon this morning. Um, we're, we're circling back to where Andrew went so admirably last week in, in the last half of chapter 2 of the, gospel, of, of the letter written to the church at Ephesus. And as we've said, if you are just joining us, the first whole half of that letter, it, we would say, is pretty much the song of the gospel. What the Lord has done for you. 
truth that has to work its way down into you such that it becomes the song of your heart. And then the back half of the letter is all about what is that dance that you start to get inspired to dance, the, the walk, as it were, from the song that is moved within you. Well, the portion that we're listening to this morning, I think you could summarize as saying to us, we are family. And it is your song, and it is written about you, but you didn't write a word of it. And yet that song will become yours. It must become yours. It's supposed to become yours. It's supposed to become mine. We want to consider what does it mean that we are family? Yes, we are forgiven. Yes, we are united to him by faith. Yes, our future is secure in him. But it is not insignificant that the Lord Jesus, in leaving things behind, didn't leave us a book. He left us each other. And the question is, why is that important? What does it matter? We want to consider what does it mean that we are family. So we're going to consider that question under three heads. Who is this family? Tell me about it. Secondly, how did this family come to be formed? There was a process, and not the ordinary way families are formed. And then, most importantly, why does it exist? Why aren't we just sort of content with saying, I believe a certain thing, um, okay, resurrection's in my future. Who cares if he's made a family for us? Well, we should answer that question too. And along, along each step of the way, we're going to kind of pause every once in a while and go, so, if that's true, then what kind of family is this? Because if we don't know what kind of family it is, we don't know what kind of family to be. So, you should all have it memorized by now because you were here last week. We're in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll start in verse 11. Would you stand again? <clears throat> Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> you can have a seat. Most of you in this room are native-born. It's the only home you know. Now, some of you may be immigrants. 
Some of you may be first-generation or second-generation immigrants, children of immigrants. And if you're the child of an immigrant, it is quite possible that at some point as you have grown up, mom or dad took you aside and, and gave you the story. What was it like before we got here? What was it like when we got here? What is it like now that we are here? You have that experience, even though that experience and that story is on the few and far between in this world. To listen to what we hear here in the first part of the passage, we, we kind of have to listen, even if we don't have that experience, as if we're the children of immigrants. Because most everybody in this room, with a few exceptions, are, are Gentiles. You don't have a Jewish background. There are exceptions. But most of us are like that. But most of us are really kind of familiar with what it maybe grown up in the church, or even if we didn't, we know some things about it. So for Paul to speak as if he does, we've kind of got to, we've got to listen intently. We've kind of got to listen humbly. We've got to listen as those, as if we are either immigrants or the children of immigrants. And what Paul is out to say here in the first part of the passage, if you're a Christian and you're a Gentile, is this, this is the point. You weren't always part of this family. Whatever may be true for you now, it wasn't always true for you at some point. And how he, how he lines that, that distinctiveness out is that there was a time in which God didn't, you didn't have God's mark on you, God's claim on you. That's what we refer to as circumcision. You didn't have any idea, much less any hope, and the idea of one who would come to forgive. You didn't have any community with those who shared the same hope. You didn't have any promises that God had made to you. And he also makes it very stark. You were without hope and without God in the world. Now that's a really kind of strident way of putting it. And it, it would be easy to interpret somebody saying you were without hope and without God as if you were saying you're bad, you were immoral. But, but that's an oversimplification to the point it might even be an untrue statement. When we say that we're without hope or without God in the world, it is to say... If we think of the gospel as hope, it's like a lighthouse on a seashore, in a sea. And if that is not your hope, then it is as if your ship is pointed in an opposite direction. That's where safety is. You're pointed in another way. Or to think of the gospel as an anchor, that God is your anchor. To, to speak of what you once were, uh, you know, we all have an anchor. We all have hope. We all have an anchor. We all have something that holds us together that is our stability, that is our ballast. And, and usually we don't know what that is until it gets ripped out from underneath us. And so many of us, even those who will profess Jesus, you know where our anchor is. It's in a different place. It's anchored in something that is like sand that will easily give way. Or... Or to, to even take that metaphor a little further, it's like taking the anchor of your ship and throwing it upon the hull of your ship and saying, there, I'm anchored. That's what we think. And we don't realize it until the, until the gale steps up. Uh, Bono, he, he's releasing his memoir, and uh, you know, he began, he and you too, they began their musical career as a, as a punk band, right? And that genre is all about rebellion. You know, kicking stuff over, overturning stuff, critiquing, being rather cynical. And, and Bono was honest enough to say that uh, as, a, as a punk band, they were really in rebellion against themselves because they knew what they were about. And so if you caught any 
references to his memoir, he, he said this um, in the article last week, I'll tell you deep down there is an anchor and I'm fixed to a rock and that rock is Jesus. But before that point, you would say that that anchor and that rock was somewhere else. Paul is here to tell us that to be without God and to be without hope is to have your hope pointed in an entirely different direction and your anchor in something that really will not sustain you. Now, he's talking primarily here to the Gentiles. Not exclusively, he's also talking to Jews. But he's talking to people that are essentially, at one point, on the outside looking in, as well as to you Jews who think you're on the inside, but really you're kind of on the step out. And he kind of puts those two constituencies in frame when he says there in verse 11. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Now, like you heard Andrew say last week, to refer to somebody as the uncircumcised, uh, wow, too much information, but really it was a pejorative term. You are the great unwashed. You are those whom we believe, we Jews believe, that God has no interest in. And yet Paul, at the same time that he refers to who the Gentiles were thought of, he says, you Jews, you are the circumcision, and yet the kind that's made with human hands only. Meaning, you may have had God's outward mark upon you, but that in no way reflected the inner character that he attended. There was a distinction and a difference that you didn't reckon with yourself. Now, those two ideas are way out there, and they're kind of way up there, and it's hard to appreciate them, so let me see if I can bring it down into a frame that's probably far more familiar. You know this painting. It's by Rembrandt van Rijn, and it's the parable, of the, prodigal two, the parable of the prodigal son, even though the parable itself is best known as the parable of the two sons. Younger son? The younger son is essentially singing Fred and Mercury, I want to break free. And so he does, because he thinks his glory will be in his freedom. And that freedom, he soon discovers, he squanders until it leads him into folly. The parable was written to Jews, but I think this parable maps nicely onto what Gentiles and Jews here represents in terms of two big paradigms and ways of thinking. Gentiles are like that younger son. We're good with what we know. We're good with what we do. I like my freedom. I am like John Locke on Lost. Don't tell me what I can or can't do. That's the Gentile mindset. What about the Jewish mindset? The Jewish mindset is like the older son, who did everything to the letter except one thing. It had nothing to do with love. It was a mercenary faith. It looked to his father as a means to an end. I do what you say, and then I get what I want, and then we're done with each other. And therefore, in both senses, you have two mindsets that are at work, brought together under the same house, under the same roof. One that says, I know what I want, and I will get what I want. And the other one that says, I'll do everything that you say, but, you know, I really don't enjoy this at all. This is the kind of family that God has brought together. Now, what kind of family is that? If you get married, maybe in your premarital counseling, you talk at least briefly about the idea of your family of origin. Because when two people come together, 
the assumption that you bring into a marriage is, well, I just do what I do because that's what I do. When in fact, so much of what you do is an inheritance from the family that you're a part of. It's a script that you were given that you didn't even know was there. And you know what? Some of that inheritance is awesome. And some of that inheritance is like rotting fish. And until you're able to discern kind of like what works and what hasn't, you, you will just operate out of that script. And, and the, more that you, the, the sooner or later that your spouse is aware, you know what, I think they're acting some ways because that's all they know. It, it's a lot easier, and it's, it, it's better to go that way than to start saying, you are a fool, right? We all come with a mindset. We all come with a family of origin. That's at work here in the kind of family that God brings together under the same roof. There are two mindsets, two families of origin at work in this world, in any given body, any given expression of God's church. There are those like the Gentiles, like the younger son, that would say, I know what I'm doing, don't tell me what I need to do, and who, what they really need to hear is this. You know why you love the Lord? You obey him. You do what he says, even when you don't want to. That's one mindset. The other mindset is, as I've said, kind of like the Jews, kind of like the older son, who again do everything that they're supposed to be doing, but there's no delight in it. The younger mindset, the, the Gentile mindset, they, they need to be said, God is desperately worthy of your obedience. The Jewish mindset needs to be said, God desperately loves you. He desperately loves you. Those two mindsets, those two families of origin come underneath the same roof. That's the kind of constituency he is bringing together under one. And, and so the practical explanation or the application of that is this. In the same way that God exerts patience for both kinds of mindsets, the way God exerts patience as he seeks to renew both ways of thinking, so you must exert the same kind of patience towards one another as he does to us. Because that's the nature of this family that he's brought together. Okay, that's who this family is. Now, how do you do it? How do you do it? All right. Remember on Sesame Street, Grover, he would go, far, near, right? Near, far, like that, right? Back and forth, back and forth. Like, how many times are we going to do this? As many times as it takes. But you heard that in the passage. The Lord preached peace to those of you who were near and to those of you who were far. What is that all about? What's going on in this passage is here to tell us that most families form an interest, an attraction, an affection, a commitment, and look, a family starts. That's not how this family started. This family that Paul is speaking of begins by forging of a peace a peace that Jesus brings together by his preaching and by his dying. So what is this hostility? What is this peace that he needed to forge? Why couldn't we all just sort of naturally get along here? Well, let's talk about the nature of the enmity between them. If you're a Gentile, most of your thoughts about Jews are, they're just an afterthought. They're just a weird kind of cult that do their own kind of bizarre rituals. They do their thing I don't really get it. They're a little bit off-putting. They're very much to themselves. 
really don't care for them, not my people. That's how Gentiles would think of Jews, because they're so odd in that way. But now let's flip it around. How did Jews think of Gentiles? Remember all the way back in chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul refers to the Gentiles, the whole church, as to the saints. Which, before we get ahead of ourselves, it doesn't mean that he's automatically talking about the saintly. He's talking about those who have been set apart for God's purposes. That's what it is to be a saint. But just like a, a bad batch of bread that you come out of the oven, it's like, oh, this is all wrong. It smells, it's, it's soft inside, that's wrong. The problem with, with Jews in that day, in that mindset, is that, yes, you may be set apart. You may be saints in that respect, but in that sense of separateness, it, in your mind, planted the sense of superiority. Now, no doubt, you read the Old Testament, there are some pretty broad distinctions. The righteous, the wicked, the wise, the foolish. There's a line drawn in the sand between those two kinds of ways. But it is never, it is never an occasion to forget that you Jews share much in common with your Gentile friends. Namely, that you are made in the same image of the same God who made them both. Across every ideological perspective axis across every political divide one thing is true of both both sides of that spectrum everybody's made in the image of god israel had forgotten about that now look if you're a jew you you have a sour taste in your mouth by the way in which gentile nation after gentile nation has run over you taken over your land exiled your people treated you like dirt and so i get it why an average jew would go gentiles no thank you. But if they will know their origin story, if they will grapple with their heritage, then they must remember that these Gentiles, these families who are not necessarily of the same family of Abraham, they're nevertheless the families that God had intended to bless through Abraham's family. It is the same families that, that Jeremiah tells Israel when they're in exile. Hey, those people unto whom you have been sent Live for their good. Because in their welfare, you will find your own. Don't separate yourself. Don't sequester yourself. Live for them. Live your life. Do good unto them. Such that as the psalmist says in Psalm 87, when he rattles off all of these former enemies of Israel, it says, all of them will one day realize they were born of this same family that you're a part of. The separateness had gone to their head. They became superior in their thinking and they had become what Jonah had become. Hey, Jonah, I need you to go to Nineveh. Tell them to cut it out. Jonah's like, how about no? And then, you know, fish, ship, whale, all that. Okay, okay, point taken. Then he goes and he says, hey, y'all better cut it out, thinking it'll never happen, right? And Nineveh goes, ho, oh, all right, cool, and they do. And, and you would think Jonah would go, awesome, mission accomplished, but no, he's angry because he couldn't care less about these Gentiles. Animosity, enmity from both directions, and what the Lord does in the midst of them through Jesus is that he sends Jesus to do what? To bring them unto themselves. He preaches to them about a peace that they all need, and the most difficult part of the whole passage is there in verse 14 and 15 about what happens to the law. 
He himself is our peace. He's made us both one. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. What, what happened to the law? How do you forge a peace from two groups that could not care less about one another? You silence them. You silence them. You silence their bickering. But you silence their bickering and you humble them by doing one thing. You silence something about the law. Now you read that and at first blush you think, hmm, it sounds like Paul was talking about what Professor Keating said in Dead Poet Society about going to the Old Testament and rip it out. That's it, rip it out. It, it no longer applies, it's trash. But what, wait, Joshua, I, I, I meditate on your law day and night. Uh, Psalm 1, I, I meditate upon the law whenever I can, that I might be true in season and out of season. Psalm 119, I love your law. It is to me like honey. Jesus himself goes, I didn't come to loosen the law. I came to fulfill it. Paul, in, in Romans chapter 7, the law is holy, righteous, and good. So what are you talking about? This is what he's talking about. <clears throat> If the law is the righteous character and wisdom of God, then what that righteous and wise character of his word is naturally doing is looking at yours and my sin and screaming condemnation at it. Calling it folly. Calling it offense. What gets silenced in the law? Jesus says, this law is true, but I'm going to silence its condemnation by taking that condemnation upon myself. You Jews, those things about the diet and about the circumcision and certain ritual purity laws and, and, and things related to, you know, that nature, those things that you used as a pretext to say, I am never going to go in a Gentile house, those are done. In fact, those sacrifices, got it, once for all. Good enough? Those things that you used as a pretext to stay out of Gentile lives and say, I don't care anymore, wrong. But now to you Jews and Gentiles, let me say the same thing. I'm now silencing the condemnation of the law because I'm going to take it upon myself. That's what he did. That's the gospel. Now, if that's how God formed this family, what kind of family is it? I will tell you. It is one in which forgiveness and reconciliation is one of its highest priorities and values at the same time that it values truth and repentance. That's this kind of family. You study the life and the ministry of Jesus, you hear what he said, and absolutely, he talks about care for the poor, he talks about the elevation of women, he talks about reclaiming the spirit of the law, he talks about challenging their idols, he talks about the nurture and love and the blessedness of children. All of those things are totally unmissable and absolutely central to what he's talking about. But if you, all of those things hang upon what he does here. And if I obscure this, if I get in the way of this and put all of those other wonderful things in front of this, I've just distorted who he is. I've just distorted what he did. I've given you a two-dimensional warped version of Jesus. And what's happening here to unite us by faith is to forgive This family, 
that God has created is a family full of sinners. And it is a family full of sinners who sin against each other. And I will be absolutely honest, and this is nothing you've never heard before, and I, you can always nod your heads. Our impulse to forgive is not automatic. But the thought of forgiveness needs to become default. It needs to be such that something that we mature in its direction. And by a mature version of understanding about forgiveness, I mean this. It is, it is not the same thing as renewed trust, but it is the beginning of it. It is not without pain. It is a process. And whereas, yes, forgiveness is for your good, the primary motivation for it is actually not your good, but for the honor of God and the good of the one to whom you extend it. It means that the one that's in need of it can never be presumptuous upon that the one that they're seeking it from. But forgiveness is at the center of this body. The whole greeting of peace thing that we do, I'm sorry that sometimes we miss it. You, you may think that the greeting of peace thing is just sort of the, you know, how do we glad hand with one another and, and then, you know, watch the introvert squirm. That's, that's not what the greeting of peace was originally intended for. It was originally intended for on those weeks when we would participate in the Lord's Supper, that if you had anything against anyone in this room before you did business there, you would speak with them and be reminded that I want to be right with you before I come before the Lord and try to eat, drink, and, worth, eat and drink worthily of that table. This family practices, fails, and tries again at forgiveness because it is a central feature of our common life. That's the kind of family we got here. There's so much more we could say about it, but we should stop there on that one. Exactly. <laughs> one last one. We've talked about the origin story. We've talked about the makeup of this body. So why? Again, to, to borrow the line from, from Leslie Newbegin, uh, we say, um, it's surely a fact of inexhaustible significance that what our Lord left behind him was not a book, not a creed, not a system of thought, not a rule of life, but a visible community. Why did he do that? Are you kidding me? It was going to be a mess. Why would you do that? It's not like Jesus didn't know. I mean, what does he pray for in John 17? That they might be one, because he, he knew what was coming. This body, this family, has a purpose, and you heard it again in verse 21 and 22, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is, is not like a contractor who comes, he looks, he designs, he builds, he leaves. The Lord is one who conceives, designs, builds, and then moves in. I'm here. I will be with you. That is my purpose. You are my people. And what is this people? Don't miss the imagery of a temple for God's dwelling place by the Spirit. That's not just highfalutin religious language that the pastor says. Why pick that word? Remember, the original temple, huge edifice, right? People would bring sacrifices. They would give 
you know, thank offerings, all that stuff. They would come and worship. They would come and pray. That's what the temple was. And then the temple gets replaced by who? By Jesus. Jesus himself is the new temple, the place where God would get his work done. He would be the sacrifice for sin. And then he leaves, and in his absence, what does he leave behind? You. You're the temple. Why does Paul pick that word to describe you as the purpose of your community being together? Well, what's a temple? It's a bunch of pieces and parts that are being fitted and shaped together for his purpose. No beautiful edifice you have ever walked into, every single part of it was at one point raw, and then a mason comes along and forms it and shapes it and and cuts it to size and fits it into place for a purpose. And every single one of you is being shaped and fitted into purpose for what? To collectively bring attention to his worth. That's what a temple does. It's fitted for purpose to bring attention to his worth so that what? That it might draw all peoples unto him. That's what a temple is. That's what we are. That's the purpose for our being. Which therefore I must say to one another, hmm, to understand church as the church, there is no such thing as attending church. Now I'm not going to go all word police on you for the rest of my life. But um, I attend the theater. I attend the baseball game. But if I understand what the church is, the community is, you, you attend what? In, in the same way, it would be weird for you to say, oh, yes, I, I am attending family. What? Now, I get it. It's, it's a practical way of, of discourse, and that's just how we, where do you go? I attend yada yada. And it's fine. Like, I'm not going to go, stop it. But words create worlds. And if, if the only thing that you're doing around here is attending and twice a month, you wouldn't want to be taken on those terms. Neither should the church. What kind of place is this then? In light of that, what kind of community is this? It is the kind of place that depends on becoming a family in order for us to ever know joy or ever love well. Our mission statement, I know you all have it memorized, it's to live for God's, fam- for God's world as God's family in the joy of God's gospel. Three parts. Unremarkable, transferable to any community that you might ever be a part of. But imagine for just a moment we erase the middle part. <clears throat> Poof. I will tell you the other two parts without that middle part become impossible. Or, or very, or so difficult as, as if you're, hand, you're tying both hands behind your back in a fist fight. The joy of the gospel? Oh yes, that will come over you, but friends, you and I both know there are days where it drains from you like water from a sponge. I forget. And I need comrades to remind me. I need comrades to confront me. I need folks that will say to you, hey bubby, hey dude, have you forgotten? Let me, let me ask you rhetorically what I asked a bunch of elders two weeks ago at Presbytery. Who 
knows the last thing that brought you to tears? Does anybody know what keeps you up at night? Have you confessed any of your sins to anyone recently at all? Look, your BFF or your spouse, they are amazing resources for that when all that is working. But they can't be the only source of it. And they were never intended to. Living in the joy of the gospel depends on that thing called a family. And, and living for God's world, man, you may have all the resolve in the world to kind of want to do what Safe Light does or be an evangelist in some other way. And that resolve may last for a while, but in time you'll realize, I don't have it in me. In fact, the people I'm trying to help are about as thankless and don't respond as I could ever imagine. I need somebody to say, your labor is not in vain. What is the kind of community that we got here? The one that depends on becoming a family in order to ever know joy and to ever love well. That's why we're here. That's why we need to hear this a second time. And that's why I'm going to end and give the last word to Fleming Rutledge. It's easy to dismiss the church out of hand. It can break your heart with its sin. It's broken my heart a few times. It's much easier to say, as many do, I can be a Christian without the church. But this renounces a most basic and fundamental message of Jesus throughout his ministry, one that shows forth most of all in his death on the cross. He is giving you to me and me to you. This is a family. It's the one you got. It's the one he's given. We fail each other. But he will never give up on us. And that's why we give ourselves unto him in and through this people. Is this your family? Let's pray. You have given us what we cannot do ourselves. You have done for us what we could never accomplish nor would we want to. You have entrusted to us a message of hope that is strong in some respects on many days and in other moments we require both help and hope from the outside. You have given us your spirit and you have given us your people and we would pray that you might teach us to be one as you are one and that you might preserve us in this hour and teach us what it means not to be afraid of knowing each other or being known. We thank you for the people that you've given us. Help us to love them in Jesus' name. Amen.